HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Item 13, an African food podcast, and I'm your host, Yom Akuaku. Every week, we'll delve into the delicious world of African food, including chefs, curators, and bloggers. Here's the show. Welcome to the show, Tapiwa. I'm excited to have you on this week. Um, I think this is going to be an insightful conversation for everyone that's listening. It's going to, it's going to be a little bit personal, <laughs> um, but then I think it's also going to be enlightening in terms of the work that both, I guess, you and I are trying to do in, in the food space. And so we'll talk a little bit about food because that's kind of what the audience is expecting, but then we're going to give some context to what it means, um, in the greater scheme of things. And so welcome, um, Thank you for being here. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is exciting. Um, I like the direction you are taking with your work, so I'm glad to be part of that story. Yeah. Great. Okay, so we'll start with you sort of sharing who you are. Who is Tapiwa? As much or as little as you want to, <laughs> to, to share about yourself. Can we do a mini-series, like 16 episodes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I am a Zimbabwean born and raised tinkerer, I suppose, is how I would describe myself. Uh, I like mm-hmm. to do a little bit of everything. I don't believe my purpose is single-fold. I believe I'm here to tackle as much as possible and then die. So part of that is food, part of that is sex education, part of that is health and well-being, movement, art, um, calligraphy. I like to create my own like scripts and oh. uh, symbology. I try to do everything. So I'm pretty like making leather work and whatever. I'm, I try to do a little bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> so who I am is that, open-ended. That's cool. That's cool. That's interesting. And it's 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 almost, when I think about the way we are raised, you know, as children, everybody asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's like, you have to have this specific answer mm. of 
this is the thing that I'm going to be, or, you know, this is, and half of the time you don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, and, and it, and it feels like that quote unquote pressure starts really early on in terms of defining who you're going to mm. be. Um, and that in itself can be, can be dangerous in some ways, I think, but that's awful. That's good. Good, like good, uh, context to get started. And, um, because you're Zimbabwean and you're the first Zimbabwean person I've had on the podcast, yeah. I wanted us to talk a, lo- a little bit about, about Zimbabwean food and Zimbabwean flavors before we get into the meat of, of our conversation. So when when we when we say Zimbabwean food, like what what does that mean? What are the staple foods that you have um, compared to, I guess, the rest of the continent or the rest of the world? What what's what stands out? What's different in terms of the food itself? And then the culture around the food, how you guys eat, eat, um, drink, celebrate with food, etc. So a, a huge part of my approach to life, right, is embracing diversity and in as many ways as mm. is possible. So I'll start off by saying Zimbabwean tribes, we, we have, I think, about 16 recognized official tribes and then some non-recognized tribes. So there is no such thing really as Zimbabwean food. In the same way, there's no such thing as African food, oh. you know. It's, right, it's going right. to be tribal <laughs> cuisines. And there's a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we have Ndebele people who are descended from people who came from South Africa. So that's more of the Nguni aspect of Bantu tribes. Then we have Kore Kore people, Roji people, Zezuru people, who kind of came down. We're talking Uganda, Rwanda, Kenya, Tanzania, all the way down to Zimbabwe. So you can see aspects of East African kind of food in the East African kind of language. But before that, those people, I think, are nihilistical or nihilotic when they came from like way further up. So it's a, it's a complicated uh, question. But having said that, there are some dishes that are, or certainly ingredients that are quite universal within the country. And obviously, and this 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 pains me to admit this all the time, but maize is a big part of our food yeah. culture. But it's not really to me. It's not part of our food culture. It's it's something. It's part of Mexican food culture that has been brought over here, and it doesn't really. A lot of the technology that goes together with eating makes uh, maize that the Mexicans have didn't translate across when they came here. So from a point of nutrition, eating maize is not a good thing in an African context because we don't have the technology to understand that ingredient and process that ingredient. But we have a bunch of our own grains here, like teff, like sorghum, like millet, like literally hundreds of varieties of all these different grains that I grew up eating, certainly, but aren't as glamorous as like bleached refined white maize meal and <laughs> <laughs> and you're like wheat flour or like barley flour those kind of things right and and same with cassava as well cassava is another south american plant but again it's heavier on the continent so there's a lot of blending of south american mm-hmm. ingredients and a lot of asian ingredients that came across with the early explorers shall we say but from my childhood and from my context as my, my my tribal connections is there's a huge component of using peanut butter in the cooking. So it's okay. like a nice 
universal seasoning for me so in a savory and sweet context so peanut butter and rice peanut butter and chicken peanut butter and dried meat that's been recooked peanut butter and greens peanut butter obviously on a sandwich uh, but in porridge (laughs) (laughs) in porridge with like pureed pumpkin i can't think of oh even like dried fish I can put peanut butter in anything mm-hmm. because we have a history of it. Peanut butter and cow peas or black eyed peas, whatever you call them. And if you're if, yeah, if you're <laughs> yeah. West African, you're gonna have that uh, black eyed pea connection, obviously. Right. Yeah. So we. Yep. Yeah. So man, we put peanut butter. Suddenly, my people put peanut butter with everything. Okay. And then we have a lot of gourd-based cooking, so like uh, calabash and pumpkin butternut again things are not really from here and the really predominant flavors that i can think of are the wild fruits and the wild plants which typically are consumed as is or consumed as medicine and very rarely are they really processed or transformed it's we my, my i grew up eating fresh things close to how they are as possible yeah but yeah and that's now i was going to say and that's unfortunate that we are um losing losing that uh part of our culture you know in terms of eating fresh food Mm. um just because i remember so distinctly when i first moved to i moved to the states around when i was 18 or 19 and just i know for the first several months i could not stomach american food because of how processed it Mm. was like it just could, it did not sit well with me at all. And I had to petition. So the college I was at um, required that you lived on campus um, for the first two mm. years. That meant also that you had to pay for the cafeteria food <laughs> as part of that package. <laughs> and so I, I had to, I had to petition to like move out of the dorms because then, because you, your, your, um, your dorm living was tied to the cafeteria. There was no, there were no kitchens mm. or like ways, there was no way to cook in, in, in the living areas. Um, and so like I had to have an extraordinary <laughs> petition to move out because, you know, I sort of overplayed how I was homesick and blah, blah, blah <laughs> to get out of that. So mm. I could cook, so I could actually cook, you know, not just cook food from home, but have like that Actual fresh, food. fresh, the money yeah. I was saving. Cause then I, yeah, it was just, um, and then I think it was also over, um, was made worse by the fact that I worked part-time in the cafeteria. And so I knew how that food was mm. made. And a lot of it was just big packages that would be, you know, was being just for efficiency's yeah. sake. Um, so nothing was being made fresh, right? And so the fact that I could see, <laughs> quote-unquote, how the sausage is being made, mm. <laughs> and then the fact that it just didn't sit well with me um, was, was, was tough. And so... Um, it's it's unfortunate that we've moved away. We're increasingly moving away from that in the name of development or progress. <laughs> um, yeah, I just I just remembered yeah. a few dishes whilst you were talking. Yeah, oh yeah, that, that sure, I, I sure, feel please. like that 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 could be different to other people's experience. So there's a dish called rupiza, which is uh, black okay. eyed peas. But we like grind them, like stone grind them into like a paste kind of, and then you cook mm-hmm. them to make. Uh, it, it it feels a bit like a peanut butter 
sauce, like a almost like a paste. Then you eat that with like okay. some kind of starch, and there's also ruatata, and that's essentially like uh, cooked blood. So it almost makes like a little cake, but it's like Ooh. savory. So you cook the blood down until most of the liquid is gone, and you get this sort of flaky. I don't even know how to describe this in English with English words, but it's it's essentially you're making almost like you're trying to make meat out of blood. So you you, you treat it you treat oh. it as meat for the dish. So you can. Mm. And this is ruatata. 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 Mm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Great. <laughs> yeah. I I will I will look I will look that up. Um. And uh, I wanted to talk about, before we talk about the work you've done with Tapi Tapi, Tapi um, just my experience. So now you live in South Africa now. And I remember when I, I lived in South Africa for two years, Joburg specifically, for two years uh, for work. And I remember being extremely disappointed in like the offerings for like African food mm. or even I mean, maybe it was, it was part, I think it was a function of where I lived in Johannesburg, but I was also disappointed that like local food wasn't as prevalent. Like I feel like if I go to Lagos, if I go to Accra, I don't have to be in certain parts of the city to get access mm. to good local mm. food. Um, and I found everywhere, like all the, from like, if I wanted a simple meal to like, quote unquote, fine dining, it was all con- so-called continental food. And it was extremely disappointing because I fought so hard to get a South Africa assignment <laughs> because I wanted that experience. Like I want from a food perspective, at least I wanted the experience of, you know, Southern. And even I know that there's a lot of people from Kenya that moved down. So wanted that Eastern African flavor too. And it was incredibly disappointing the only time i had a meal with um and i mean talking about i guess maybe not the only time the one of two times i would say one one was being in soweto where but even then it's like um touristy soweto right (laughs) so they are making all these brides and whatnot Mm. for the tourist population Mm. which is fine um but then the best meal and that this was this was pan-african and i don't know if you you know sansa who is based in yeovil um who does this pan-african dinner and yeah and for me that was <laughs> it was eye-opening in a lot of like going into yeovil and i don't know how much you know about yeovil mm. in particular but going into yeovil is an experience and it's all of its <laughs> yes. own so it's for those who are listening that are not familiar yeovil is um it's it's out it's out outside of the main Joburg city it's where a lot of west african and i would say other african immigrants live it's not considered to be the safest of of neighborhoods um but this is where you probably find the most vibrant um cultures in terms of food and the way people interact with each other it reminded me of home in a lot of ways but then you also had to be very careful one because that there was a lot of um tension between west africans and and local south africans and just the reputation of the area wasn't mm. great but sansa who is based in yovo pro- provides this communal dining experience where it's, it's truly pan-african so 
Um, he has, you know, these dinners where he invites people over. You helped him to prepare the table a little bit so it feels like a family mm-hmm. dinner. And he does this explanation of the... He does this Af- Pan-African fusion, which I love. Because when people talk about fusion, they're always fusing Italian or French with our mm. food. But he he does this Pan-African fusion so well. Like, he, he will do, um like, a West African pea thing with, like, a North African bread. Mm. And it was just the way he spoke about it. And even the way he talked about it, which is something I wanted to talk to you about when we moved to talk about Tapi Tapi and ice cream is that he ta- also talked about his respect for the ingredients and the way to cook them mm-hmm. from the different places in, in Africa mm-hmm. and how he learned how to make them so that he was honoring those traditions. And so he would say, for example, walking down the streets of of Yeovil, he would smell something and he would follow the smell and he'd find this woman cooking in the corner, just making this Liberian thing. And he would ask her to teach him. And so he would go over like every week until... He sort of mastered the dish the best he could, and then he would introduce that mm. new dish to to his communal dinner. And so for me, that was probably hands down ar- around the world, one of my best dining experiences ever. Very beautiful. And it speaks to sort of the work that you and I, in some ways, are trying to do in terms of education. So he does a lot of educating about cultures because he talks about the food in the context of culture. Um, he also honors, he's, he's very, um, open about the fact that I'm South African. Like this is not necessarily like these specific things are not necessarily, um, native to like who I am, but I, I'm also African in the, in the sense that I, like we are one people. And then he talks about the cult, you know, history of colonization and all like he brings it together so beautifully. Mm. And, and, and then the way that the dining is done and that it's family style, it's, it's the way we eat. It's just, it's one of, you know, it's, he does this in his own little community somewhere, but I, it's just a fantastic, fantastic experience. Um, I will go from that. I'll switch gears from that. I think we'll, we'll come, you'll see the connection to, to Sansa's story when we start talking about more of Tapiwa's work and the scope of um, what he's trying to do with respect to food. So let's start quickly with the obvious so that we can move forward. So Tapi Tapi ice cream, what was your impetus for starting that? And then it sounds like it's from the name it sounds like it's something you derive from your name <laughs> but if you can tell us also like what what tapi tapi literally means as well as you know your inspiration to start it sure thing so tapi tapi kutapira is the verb for something being sweet so tapi tapi oh. is saying sweet 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 it's like saying yum yum or mm, bon bon you know it's like saying something like that but okay. specifically referring to sweetness. So if you have like a nice jam sandwich, like, ooh, tapi tapi, ku tapira. You know, that's emphasizing the fact that it's like so sweet and delicious and tasty. Mm. And I, I'd, I'd always wanted to be involved in food in some way, shape or form, because I grew up cooking in my grandmother's house. And in particular, I grew up making sweet things, like baking, we used to bake together a lot. And oh, yeah. interesting. So when I came to varsity to Cape Town, South Africa, I used to like sell little cakes and whatnot to make like pocket money. We call it pocket money. A little bit of <laughs> yeah, yeah. <me> too. <laughs> a little bit of uh, change for whatever shenanigans. And during my study years, 
things got a bit too intense. I was too focused on the studying. So I stopped really cooking. I was just eating as a function of survival. And in my post-grad years now, so graduate school, is that what you say in America? <laughs> yeah, gra- graduate yeah. school, yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, I always need to learn how to like move from especially when i go home yeah. to move from american english to like british english yeah. because some of these words like when i'm in america it's elevator when i'm at home Le- it's yeah. a lift like <laughs> so, <laughs> when i moved to postgraduate level i suddenly had a bit more time and i had scholarship money so i could afford to buy nicer ing- mm. not nicer but a different range of ingredients to cook with so i started exploring different cuisines South American cuisines, uh, Asian cuisines, European cuisines, Mediterranean cuisines. And I started doing whatever I could to just learn about different cultures. But in all that, I never bothered experimenting with food from this continent. And, oh, hold on a second. Okay, cool. My earphones have done something weird. Sorry. Okay, All that's right, fine. Cool. So in, in that time where I'd been experimenting with global cuisine, I'd almost like made an extra effort to not explore African food cultures at all. And it was this huge gaping hole in my newfound focus. I was like, oh, what are they doing in Japan? What are they doing in Italy? And I never looked to say, oh, what are they doing in South Africa where I live? So... Mm-hmm. Fast forward, finished post-grad, did master's, PhD. And during the PhD years, I started making a lot of ice cream. And again, I was still just doing ice creams from other places. And I was trying to always find the more, the next exotic ingredient. Oh, dragon fruit. Oh, let's try thyme and honey. Oh, basil and pine nuts, whatever. Let's keep pushing the envelope with what we can do with ice cream. Yeah. You know? And then... In 2018, so at that point, I'm making, I've been making ice cream for about eight years in 2018. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, just for fun at home. I went to Indonesia. And while I was there, I noticed a lot of parallels between how I was raised and how some of the Indonesian people live. Very content, kind of simple life you are happy with whatever that you have. And that's how I kind of grew up. And that reaffirmed or brought me back to the way I was raised with my family. And I decided, oh, my goodness, why does it keep swapping between the two different earphones? Do you have any idea? I can still still hear you okay. So if... Okay, it's back now again. I don't know why it's doing that. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Mm, this is weird but sorry so in any case when i was in indonesia i noticed this overlap between how they lived and how i'd been raised so i was now really sort of reconnecting with my identity and then i come back a week later my grandmother passed away and she had been like my food mentor so i went back home to zimbabwe and in that time i was I took a lot of time to think about what I was doing with my life. And I was now doing my postdoc, uh, postdoctoral fellowship in South Africa. 
And the research I was doing was moving more and more away from the continent. I was working on making plants from South America, making plants from Asia, making plants from Europe grow better in an African context. Instead of saying, how can I improve on the crops that are from here so that they do better in our context, right. you know? So I was suddenly like really disillusioned about the work that I was doing. And I was like, no, this makes no sense. But on top of that, as a scientist, there was a delay between the amount of time it was taking for us to connect to people. The point for me of science is to obtain new knowledge and share it with as many people as is possible. But what the reality can be is you obtain new knowledge and you share it with other scientists and then you move on and you add to that knowledge pool. <laughs> but you just, it's not accessible, yeah. right? So now I had this really urgent feeling that I was doing the wrong kind of work. I'm still a scientist, but I was not doing what I wanted to be doing with the science. And then, mm -hmm. so 2018, I started the company as, and I say company intentionally, I started the business. I say that intentionally as well, as a, as a way to just sell some ice cream. And I was still making the same old flavors. Uh, I started experimenting with the fermentation of ice cream, beer flavored ice cream, cocktails, you know, trying to get a gimmick going to explain to people yeah. the difference. You never really know this difference until you've had homemade ice cream. And I was, I was trying to explain to people, buy my ice cream because it's really good. They're like, yeah, I can get hugging. I'm like, no, you haven't had ice cream. You've had what you think is good ice cream. But if you've never had ice cream someone made for you at home, <laughs> you haven't had ice cream, yeah. you know? So I was trying to find this, all these little gimmicks to convince people to buy into what I was doing. And then maybe two months later, I was in a Zimbabwean restaurant, a Shona restaurant in South Africa. And I saw some snacks from home. And for the first time, I was like, hey, why don't I put some of that in my ice cream? And I made five flavors inspired by home. And that was the first time I tasted the ice cream that reminded me of my people, that evoked oh. emotion. Yeah that evoked nostalgia, that took me back to specific memories, as opposed to, oh, I remember the last time I had strawberry ice cream was delicious, versus, oh, shit, this is summer in Zimbabwe, right? <laughs> oh, this tastes like my grandmother's yeah. house. Oh, this tastes like my mother's cooking. Oh, this tastes like whatever. It was the first time I felt like I had created something that was true to me. And I was like, okay, I've got it. I've got my gimmick. And it was still a gimmick. I was like, haha, I know how to make money from this thing now. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then fast forward a few more months, I had an event in September. Around about this time now, actually. Yeah. So around Heritage Day in South Africa, there's something called Heritage Day, hmm. which yep. I want to touch on a little bit later, the problems with that. But for now, <laughs> 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 okay. for now, I did a Heritage Day event where I did a nine-course tasting menu with nine different ice cream flavors from Zimbabwe. Ooh, All right. Yeah. And it was in my friend's house, very small, intimate, 20 people. And what I found in that space was, for the first time, people felt seen by a menu. This is very rare in Cape Town for black people to yeah. feel seen by a menu. Yeah. Right. In South Africa, yes, but Cape Town, it's really, really... Cape Town especially. Outrageous. Yeah. Cape Town is very, I mean, I will say it, it's very white. Yeah. Like, I've been to Cape mm. Town several times, and it's very, 
you, you don't know it, it doesn't even feel like africa no, in a lot of ways no, no. it feels like um, in spain or like some yeah yeah mm. right <laughs> <laughs> so it was the first time i noticed something quite powerful when so there were some zimbabweans and some nuns some non-zimbabweans in the room right so i would serve a course i'm like okay this is nopi this is a dish inspired by pumpkin and peanut butter from my people my grandmother used to make this for me it's a very special dish for me and on and on and on and on then i would leave to go prepare the next course the other zimbabweans are like oh actually i'm from southeastern zimbabwe we have nopi but it's not made this way we don't use peanut butter we use the seeds from bitter lemon uh, melon or we use blah 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 so now you're having this cultural exchange people are getting excited people are like oh my right. goodness this is so familiar and yet so different and then i realized i can't tell this story by myself it's even better when it's told by other people in the room if i if i can facilitate a space where this conversation can happen organically without like okay today's subject material is blah 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 just loosely guide that conversation <laughs> magic is going to happen so then I started doing these monthly events. Each month I would do a different country or a different theme. And so the next month, I think I did South Africa. And I took an ingredient, a plant here called Impepo, which is sacred to a lot of the tribes here. They're using a lot of their cultural practices. In addition to being a medicinal plant, in addition to being an insecticide, a bunch of different things. But it was the first time a lot, of, in fact, all of them in attendance had seen it as an edible product. I put into ice cream and I put into a cake and I combined the two for a dessert. And some people were like, oh, you're bastardizing our culture. Some people were like, oh, this is amazing. I didn't know you could eat this plant. But the consequence of that was conversation was happening. Right. And yeah. they felt truly seen because I used this ingredient and I also explained its significance. And I use it in the way that they know as well. So we burn it as part of the ceremony before an event. You burn it to invoke your ancestors into a space to join you in this celebration in this grieving in this mourning whatever ritual you're about to partake in right you burn this plant so they're like oh even this zimbabwean guy is paying attention to me more than i paid attention to myself you know or more than other restaurants here pay attention to my people to my tribe because all we get here is pizza we have burgers we there's no representation as a, except for, you know, when you go to like the hood and you go find food in the hood from people in the hood, that's the only time you really engage yeah. with authentic food. If you go to a quote unquote African restaurant in the sort of mainstream areas, it's going to be white owned, gentrified for tourists. Right. You know, like that difference between like eating Chinese food versus going with a Chinese person to where they yeah. buy food from Taiwan. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's a very yeah. different experience. So in that moment, people are getting emotional. People are crying. And I'm like, oh, this is not a gimmick. This is not a gimmick. This is power. This is education. This is empowerment. This is nostalgia. This is representation. This is decolonization. This is something you cannot buy. This is something you cannot manufacture. This is real lives feeling touched, feeling connection, feeling represented. I was like, I have found my purpose and that purpose is not developing. But what I'm realizing is 
there is a collective collective damage that's been done to the continent's self-esteem it's ubiquitous different tribes have mm-hmm. a different balance with it and different countries as well but it's undeniable that colonization has fractured our ego to the point you don't even realize it until someone shows you hey this is you wake up and now the focus of all my work including tapi tapi but beyond tapi tapi is mm-hmm. to rehabilitate that ego to rehabilitate that esteem to say you are good enough you are worthy your beliefs your practices your food your identity your clothing your textiles your art your very being is phenomenal it's amazing it comes from a long time ago before 1488 when the first settlers came here it comes from the beginning all of life comes from this place you are from the very beginning of life on this planet as uh, as a human species you are undeniable your origins are potent but you have no freaking clue how significant you are how powerful you are so it's about how do we move forward beyond the food how do we move forward as a person who identifies as an african in all your being mm-hmm. everything that like your sexuality your belief systems your your mathematics your science whatever it is that you do how can you embrace your identity to say yes i'm a scientist yes i'm a practitioner of whatever how can yeah. i tie that to my identity and add that to my culture and bring my culture forward not by abandoning it but by con- um adding to your culture contributing to the culture right. contributing to the legacy i am this person this is what i'm good at i want to add to the story how do i do that as tapi tapi and how do i help other people do that in their own spaces in their own work because it's not a journey it's not a fight i'm going to do alone it's not a journey it's not a fight that's going to happen in my generation i'm doing this for millennia down the line i'm doing it for our grandchildren our great grandchildren the children i will never see i will never have children myself because i've chosen not to but i'm doing this work <laughs> for other little black kids and adults that's what tapi tapi is about wow that's that's so powerful and um <laughs> it's so funny because like I I actually didn't even expect it to sh- to share this or it's maybe to share it in this way but when you talk to when you talk about you know seeing the value in who we are and what we bring to the table um so earlier this year I was invited to well I was I was invited to this food conference mm. thing as a to speak on a panel about uh building what was the title building a sustainable food network right super broad range blah blah but I was invited to a specific panel, I think about, I forget the title, but whatever. <laughs> and then maybe a couple of months. So I was invited late last year, actually. And then towards the end of the year, early this year, they sent me an invitation that, oh, up and further review, blah, blah, blah. They think I would make for, I would be better suited to be a keynote speaker mm. or to be the keynote speaker. And... 
my first thought was, who am I? Like, what? Because first of all, this was happening. This was happening in um, North. This is, this is not happening in New York or Elio, some cosmopolitan city, right? This is happening in Raleigh, North Carolina, mm. which is not incredibly diverse. So in my That's mind, in the South, I'm right? speaking to. Uh, yeah, I would say, yeah, close mm. to the South, yeah. Mm. <laughs> it has a Southern. It's close enough to the South that it's a lot of Southern mm. culture, yeah. So. Um, it, that was my first inkling. I was, you know, if it if it was New York or something, I'd be like, okay, the the mix of the crowd would make me feel a little bit more comfortable. Mm -hmm. But here I am thinking my most of my experiences has been in the African food space, and these people are talking about probably like more you know rural farming or like American food systems. Like, what do I have to contribute? Mm -hmm. Especially talking about you know sustainability and all this stuff. Um, but it was funny. I was, I told my friends that it's, it's interesting that this happened in January because one of the things I had come, you know, and you, like around the beginning of the year, you make your resolutions for better or for worse. <laughs> and one of the resolutions I had made was, um, to say yes, more to say yes, more often to opportunities that allow me to, to tell our stories. And so it's funny in that, you know, whether you believe in God or the universe, like that alignment happened like as quickly as I made the resolution. Mm. And so it's difficult for me to say no, because I had just made that promise or commitment to myself. So I said yes, but I didn't know sort of in which direction I was going to go. And as I spent more time, because then I started doing research about like American system to rural farming, the things they do, blah, blah, blah. And then I, I could sort of feel that disconnect because I'm like, this is not me. This is another thing I know. Like, what, I, you know, what is this? This is something that they can, they know and, you know, it's their culture or whatever. So I switched gears and decided to talk about what I knew about sustainability. Um, I talked about, you know, growing up how we prepared food, how small, you know, smallholder farming was like a thing, which is just, it's more sustainable than, you know, corporate large farming that's prevalent in America. I talked about, you know, this idea of recycling and reusing all parts of food, which is native, which is common to us, like just by virtue of our no waste uh, mindsets like you use all parts of the animal you use all parts of uh, the vegetable yeah. um going to the market and my mom speaking to the market woman who could tell you what exactly what farm you know their tomatoes were coming from or which fisherman brought in you know this catch of fish that connection to our food that americans are looking for today in terms of local organic or whatever it's always been with it us is. and so like I was able to make that connection. So I spoke about what I knew, right? In terms of like my personal experience growing up. And then I tied it to examples of things people were doing on the continent that I was aware of in terms of both farming and food and all of that. And I remember like I tried not to look at the audience. I'm looking at the back of the audience as I speak because I don't want their um, reaction to influence what I'm saying. And the feedback afterwards was like out of this world because for a lot of those people, one, they never consider what they were doing in the context. Like Africa is not even on their radar, right? And so they're like, oh, can you connect me to this company that you mentioned that's doing X, Y, Z? Can you tell me a little bit more about this grain? I talked about Fonio and, you know, what that means in terms of 
um, the movement around gluten-free and blah, 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 and that a lot of our grains, like millet, sorghum, fonio, mm. are naturally gluten-free mm. and all of this stuff. So where can I find fonio and blah, blah, blah. And, and like, I haven't thought about this in a while, but, you know, the what you were sharing right now brought that all back to me mm. and how even with with me, it took it took that moment of self-reflection. And who knows, maybe if I'd been in in March or April with like COVID and all that happening, maybe I would have said no. But the timing of that and that ability to recognize that we have something to offer mm-hmm. um, that other people may not appreciate, or may not even appreciate because they don't know about. And so that um, recognition, that self-esteem you talk about, I think is, is, is really, it's going to be really crucial in this movement. Um want to recognize it in ourselves and then to think about then how how we contribute that to the rest of the world um i think this is a good time to take a break (laughs) i just got super emotional there for a second um we'll take a break and then when we come back i think we can start to talk about collaboration and I saw something, especially in the context of one collaboration in general. And then I also want to um, talk about it in the context of capitalism, because I've I've seen or read somewhere that you don't believe in, in a capitalist society. So I want to talk a little bit about that too. in the context of collaboration and what that means, sure. um, like wealth creation, economic empowerment and all that. Sure. Um, okay. So let's take a break. Let me catch my breath (laughs) and we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of heritage radio network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. All right, so we're back. Um, Before we go into this idea of collaboration, um, I want to talk about capitalism in that context also. Um, Tapiwa had mentioned earlier Heritage Day in South Africa, and I wanted him to share his thoughts on that. I remember it so well, and even um quote unquote celebrating that in the context of co- being in corporate south africa if you will. <laughs> it was interesting to, for me to watch as an outside as an outsider mm. so um i would love to hear your perspective on on that so 
I'm going to give a comparison to contextualize it in a, in a different way for... Well, the only place I can think of is America, right? So I think February, you have Black History Month, right? Yeah. Yep. So for me, there's a time where Black Day was important, Black Month was important. There's a time where Heritage Day was important to you know, change the course of the conversation to try and empower people, whatever. Acknowledge our existence, right? But for me, this thing is on a, there's a timeline. And we can't keep making exceptions of ourselves. And what I mean by that is, by the mere fact of having Black History Month, the mere fact of having Heritage Month or Heritage Day, you're saying every other time of the year, it's okay to ignore us. It's okay to not be a priority. It's okay to take time off from being Black, from being African. And for one month in September and for one day on the 16th, we shall be <laughs> as blackety black, black, black as we possibly can be black, black. Yeah. Right? And to me, that reinforces that thing of when you say you want to go for African food or you want a suit made from African print, you are making a point of saying we are the weirdo on this continent. You don't go to Italy mm. and ask for Italian food. You have food. You don't go to Japan, you don't ask oh, for wow. fish, you have sushi or sashimi, whatever, right? Their language describes their food. They don't make, oh, today we're having Japanese food, it's Japanese day, <laughs> right? They don't make a big hoo about it. <laughs> They'll make a weird hey. exception to say, oh, I feel like going for Italian because I'm in Japan, right? We on the continent are in the habit and I'll, I'll speak to my part of the continent because I'm familiar with this aspect of the continent, right? We're in the habit of saying, well, this plant is called impepo, argument sake, right? Oh, then someone white is like, oh, well, what is that? And you're like, oh, it's like African sage. It's like sage, but African, you know, it's black. It's... <laughs> but the converse would never be true, right? Or really would be true, right? The yeah. inverse, sorry. You don't go to Italy yeah. and they say, oh, this is gnocchi. What's gnocchi? Oh, it's like Italian maguinha. Or it's like Italian whatever, right? They'll, they'll just say, <laughs> it's gnocchi. You learn how to pronounce the word, no matter how difficult it is. Strubwafel, uh, schnitzel, kaiser steak, whatever, kassler steak, whatever. Right? You learn the word. <laughs> but when we always yeah. make this concession to say, oh, shame, they're poor little delicate tongues that can't access this information. How do I make this an approximation so you get it? As opposed to saying, this is who we are, get with it. So this Heritage Day thing stirs up similar sentiments, stirs up similar emotion in me. It's saying, the other 11 months of the year belong to whiteness. And this one month, ooh, finally we can breathe. I shall go wear my kitenge. I shall wear my shuka. I can, you know, finally be black or be African. Right? And I know it, its inception, there was a point to it. But at some point, you have to let go and just say, oh, I'm going to go out for food. Or oh, what kind of food are you having? Oh, I'm going to have Kosa food. I'm going to have Zulu food. I'm going to have Pedi food. Not to say I'm going to have this homogenous African food full of nonsense yeah. that's not really from me as well. Right? Like, there's this big thing for Heritage Day to do like a braai. And a bride is essentially cooking by fire. 
And I'm like, I grew up cooking by fire. Every day was Friday, right? Because I was, my stews <laughs> were by fire. Baking, we did baking by fire in the earth. Um, toasting, pop, popping popcorn by fire in a pan. You know that pan that stays outside? It's never, it's always seasoned. It's never washed. Right. You know? Yeah. So what do you mean this is part of Heritage Day and not any other day? That's part of my heritage period. That's part of being black right and so i'm i'm really against this idea and i i celebrated heritage day once that first event two years ago i don't do it again because it makes an exception and now that tapi tapi has been established as the place you can get african ice cream i'm taking the african out of the name is tapi tapi ice cream you come here and you have tapi tapi ice cream yeah. Oh, what flavors do you have today? Oh, I have this flavor from Senegal. This is Cafe Tuba. Oh, I have this flavor from Ghana. This is Kelewele. I have this flavor from uh, Morocco. It's whatever, you know. Mate, uh, the tea they do with the mint. Oh, this flavor from Kenya. It's uh, Ndengu and Chapati. Oh, this You know, whatever, right? And I don't tokenize myself because it's done the job. I've got people's attention. I, they now know I'm an Afrocentric space. I don't have to keep declaring this fact because what's next? I want another person to open an equivalent of Tapi Tapi in their neighborhood that does frozen yogurt, that does ice cream, do a better job than I can. Oh, actually, I only do South African flavors of ice cream. That's even better because now you're talking about eating locally, yeah. right? No, no, no. I do Western Cape province versions of ice cream or dumplings or whatever traditional foods that you have, your rupizas, your ratata, your umlekwa, whatever, right? That's that's what we need to be looking at. How do we move away from saying we're an exception we get to enjoy from time to time to say we're normal and from time to time, 3% of all the restaurants in this city are not African food or are not South African food. Once in a while, I'll go to Panarotis to have pizza or whatever the hell it is. That's my beef with Heritage Day. <laughs> that you know, it makes it makes sense to me. It it makes a lot of sense to me. And I like as as you you know you were talking about it. It it um one this whole idea of renaming our foods to to appease others, right? Like sometimes you'll post something and you'll say, "This is I don't know um, what's an example." Actually, I did post something recently um, t called Tatali. It's it's a Ghanaian. Um, it's called Tatali in, in Ghanaian dialect language, whatever. And um, uh, and then I caught myself like I I had to, I described it in English, if mm. you will, like calling it a spice. So it's a it's a it's a plantain dish like made with you use super ripe plantains mm. and then you add different spices and you fry them almost comes out like plant in round circular like um plant uh what do you call it pancake like mm. and so there's always that um instinct <laughs> to say this is tatale and then not just and leaving it at that for people to discover mm. themselves or whatever but you feel the whatever it is to say okay like i need to explain describe it, it in english mm. so that people yeah explain it further so people get it which um it's, it's, it's actually sad. Um, you know what it is? We, we, we've then, lost the, vocab I'm sorry, go we've ahead. Lost the vocabulary what? for some of these things, right? 
So yeah. the vocabulary that we have is the English, is the French, is the Italian, uh, based on our colonial legacy on the continent and the Portuguese, right? So your default is like, oh, whenever I make a dough that I then cook in oil and it puffs up and I use yeast, I've made a dumpling, right? Right, <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. But, so yeah. What, what, what I encourage people to do and what I myself do from time to time is I put time aside to find old vocabulary. If it doesn't exist, make it yourself, right? Language is beautiful in that way. If enough people adopted, it is now part of the language. It's now part of the lexicon, whatever people say, right? So because I work in ice cream, I do a lot of dessert-centric neologisms where I come up with new words that describe, for argument's sake, ice cream itself, right? So my sugar cones, I call them dendere, and dendere is a nest. Because when I look at it, it looks like a nest with an egg in it. When you look at a, a scoop inside Ooh. a sugar cone, right? And people are like, oh, what's a dendere? And I'm like, oh, here's a dendere. But what, what is it? <laughs> Here it is. This is what it is. It's a dendere. And you insist. <laughs> and you, you command the space and say, oh, but what is it like? Can you explain to me in English? Yeah, the English word for it is dendere. If you want to use in a sentence in English, say dendere. I was eating dendere earlier on. Because we do that with every other culture and every other language. We insert non-English terms. If you are an English-speaking nation, you insert non-English-speaking terms in respect of the origin of that thing, the origin of that word. So why not for ourselves? So if the language doesn't exist, we are going to have to create it. And that's what I mean by, like, this is a community effort over time, normalized. Even my hashtags, my hashtags are in Shona. Because next time you're looking for Rotata, you're going to come across Tapi Tapi and you find a recipe for it because I've left it there for you to find it. Not because I'm trying to get likes. No, I want you to be able to access that information. If you want yeah. useful information, you're going to have to look using the words that those people associate with that thing. If I want a recipe for a goosey, I don't Google Nigerian stew with bitter lemon or whatever, right? I search Ugusi, right? Because you're going to find a Nigerian recipe written by a Nigerian person yeah. who grew up with this thing versus yeah. you end up with like the spruce eats or like the kitchen ver Jamie Oliver's take on Ugusi. You don't want that thing. You want the original thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think we will probably make this like part one of this conversation because we've covered so much and I think people will need to take it in, digest it before we move on to this, the second half of our conversation. So this is the end of part one of our conversation. And then I guess tune in next week for, for part two. Thank you for listening to Item 13, an African food podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. To keep up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Item13Podcast. Item13 is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter 
at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.